the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and thank you for being here tonight to hear from the people who are working to improve our world. We're going to begin with a free literacy app that registers 20,000 new users every single school day. It's called Common Lit, and their founder and CEO, Michelle Brown, says it's a reading program that reaches all students. With Common Lit, you can assign differentiated supports or ladders, Mm -hmm. if you will, for different students by enabling or disabling those supports like read aloud, translation, guided reading mode, um, just to give those students an extra bridge to grade level content. And then I'll be joined by Lauren Smith the co-CEO of the mission-driven consulting firm, FSG. And she'll tell us about one of the concepts introduced by the firm. It's called collective impact. If you want to get after a deep, complex, intractable problem, you're going to need multiple perspectives and multiple kinds of uh, folks involved in solving it. So collective impact essentially was just that multi-sector collaborative process for developing uh, effective change at the systems level. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, November 10th. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has announced the Path to a Cure initiative, a $500 million commitment focused on accelerating treatments for cystic fibrosis. Giving and volunteering rates among young college graduates have been falling in recent years, driven in part by social and demographic trends that point to continued declines. Only 3.7% of environmentally focused nonprofits disclose data about the gender of their staffs and senior leaders, and even fewer, 2.7%, disclose data on racial demographics. Blacks give 25% more of their income annually than white households, according to a report by the Kellogg Foundation. Apple has announced a $2.5 billion commitment to address the housing crisis in California, where skyrocketing rents and home prices are making housing increasingly unaffordable for teachers, firefighters, first responders, and others. While New York City is exploring co-living as a solution for adding more affordable housing. In a new apartment complex planned for Harlem, some tenants will share a spacious kitchen and living room with as many as 19 roommates. And finally, thanks to the tech crowd, San Francisco is now home to more dogs than children. And that is a Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Michelle Brown of Common Lit right after this. A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to smiletrain.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Literacy is an issue of major concern to parents, those in the field of education, and to a degree, each of us. So if there was a literacy digital platform that was generating 20,000 new users So if there was a literacy digital platform that was generating 20,000 new users every school day, you might be interested in knowing what they're doing and how they were doing it. And you're going to find that out tonight with Michelle Brown, the founder and CEO of Common Lit. Good evening, Michelle, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you, Denver. It's great to be here. So you're teaching students from low-income backgrounds in rural Mississippi. What happened? What was the impetus that got you started on this journey to be starting Common Lit. Yeah, that's great. So so my journey really starts um, 
after college. I went to Butler University. I was an English major, graduated in 2009, so 10 years ago. And I joined Teach for America. Um, and I was sent to rural Mississippi to teach seventh grade reading mm-hmm. in a high poverty school. Uh, on day one, I walked into a classroom there that had nothing, no resources, no books. And I spent the next two years of my life scrambling to build a curriculum for students um, and just searching the internet for hours and hours. And it really amazed me even then 10 years ago, as it does now, that there wasn't sort of one institution Mm -hmm. um, that had released, you know, a research-based free digital reading program, um, you know, and that teachers were sort of piecing things together with whatever they could find. Um, So, you know, fast forward, I kept teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, I moved to Boston, and I taught at a high-performing charter school in the Uncommon Schools Network, uh, where on day one, they handed me a curriculum that had been perfected by veteran teachers Uh over 13 years. And my feeling was just like, what are we doing? (laughs) Where was this in Mississippi? Exactly. I was like, why isn't this digital? Why hasn't someone put this online? Um, And so that was kind of the the core impetus for starting commonlit.org. Where are we um, with regard to literacy in this country today? And by that, I mean what percentage of students are reading at grade level? Yeah, so it amazes people to learn this, um, but about 60% of students leave high school unable to read and write at grade level. Mm. Um, We also know that something happens in middle school. Um, You know, like if you actually look at the numbers, students are – we're getting better at teaching students to read by grade three. Um, But then the achievement gaps widen around middle school. And the ACT a few years ago published a report that actually said that eighth grade, the student's eighth grade score is one of the best predictors of life outcomes. That's a pretty powerful statement. So as you begin to put this whole thing together, what was going to become common lit, you were looking for best practices, some foundational information based on maybe your own experience, but particularly based on the existing research. What are some of those best practices that you've built this organization on? Yeah, so let me just back up and say, you know, I think that um, the reason I was so interested in best practices is because I was sort of fascinated by how technology specifically could nudge people to change their behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like, I think if you just go out on the street in front of your office and see how many people are riding around on scooters um, (laughs) in business suits with coffee splashing Uh all over them, Um, you know, technology really does change the way we behave. And so what I was interested in doing, and this is what I focused uh, my grad school experience on, are what are the research-based best practices that have been proven over and over in peer-reviewed studies and randomized experiments that uh, make a difference for kids um, in middle and high school for adolescents. And so there are a handful of them. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, Teaching academic vocabulary explicitly Mm -hmm. is one of the best practices with like 14 citations. Um, And what that means is that actually teaching kids high leverage words, not like obscure words, high leverage academic words that you would see whether you're in a reading class or a math class or a science class, a word like associate. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of those second tier. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Tier two. And... um, And to just see that word and practice with that word over and over and over again. So that's one of the best practices that we nudge through commonlet.org. And what we mean by nudge is like it's actually hard to ignore that best practice if you're (laughs) using commonlet. We're going to make sure that it happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, give us the broad strokes of the intervention, the product, what the student and teacher experience. What's it like working with commonlet? Yeah. So it's actually really a whole school model. Um, and so what we did is we thought, what what is the foundation of a world-class reading program? Mm-hmm. Or like if you look at very high-achieving schools across the country, what are the things that they have in place? And we found that there were four things. 
And the first and the foundation is they have core curriculum. And what I mean is like a baseline that they offer teachers mm-hmm. with all of the materials um, that teachers need every day that sort of builds um, – you know, over time throughout the year. Foundational. That's foundational. Um, And the second is aligned assessments. So, you know, you might be surprised to learn or listeners might be surprised to learn that uh, many school districts and teachers say that the tests that they give students don't actually measure what was taught. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes what you know, you're getting from your district, you know, you can imagine that would feel like a real gotcha if you're a teacher. It's like, you know, whips, I didn't even teach this this quarter. Blindsided. And so how can you actually, you know, identify whether students are struggling and how you can make a change? So having assessments that actually align to the curriculum. Um, And then uh, the third is um, the formative data. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, the daily, it's basically a dashboard um, that school leaders um, or district leaders can look at. Um, And fourth is teacher professional coaching. And, you know, as a coach, that coaching and practice and reflection is so important. And it's the same for a teacher. Now, when you go to Common Lit, is this free or do you have to pay for it? That's a great question. So our business model is that everything that's foundational, that whole core piece, mm-hmm. is 100% free for teachers and students. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've grown virally. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, in the long run, um, by doing professional development, we can sustain those operations mm-hmm. and deliver a world-class reading curriculum that's fully digital for less than the cost of a pencil per student, mm-hmm. which is crazy when you think about efficiency and philanthropy and, you know, putting your dollar to good use. It is crazy. <laughs> Where does your content come from? All over. So content is everything. You know, we believe that what you put in front of students to read matters so much. It can change your perspective. Um, and so we're very, very picky. We have a team of eight curriculum writers. Um, we have news articles, poems, short stories, historical documents. Um, we collect from anthologies. We commission works from new up-and-coming writers um, to ensure that you know our stories feature diverse characters and protagonists. So it's really quite diverse. We mm-hmm. have like Amy Tan, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. you name it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one of your best practices, too, which is diverse array of literature. I love that you know the, the best practices. That's great. Well, I'll quiz you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as it was in the text, you know yeah. what I mean? It has to be uh, appropriate yeah. to the text and the quiz, which is another one of your best practices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's great. Um, so, so let me see if I have this right, Michelle. You were doing seven course plans. Every single day in Mississippi, because you had kids in your class from A to Z in terms of their capability. Are you saying here that teachers and students can go to this library and get something that's just right for them? That's right. But it's actually a little bit more nuanced than Mm -hmm. that. And so let me sort of paint the picture for you. And so you're a teacher and you teach seventh grade reading and you have a class of students who read at seven different grade levels. But you also know that it's a best practice for you to have a shared classroom experience. Mm -hmm. You want to teach students about a concept. You want them to be able to, you know, all read and interact with something that's grade level appropriate. With Common Lit, you can assign differentiated supports or ladders, Mm -hmm. if you will, for different students by enabling or disabling those supports like read aloud, translation, guided reading mode, um, just to give those students an extra bridge to grade level content. Got you. Got you. Well, you built this around the education first, but you're a high-tech nonprofit. That's right. So speak to us a little bit about the tech part of this. Yeah. So, you know, when people ask whether we're a nonprofit or a tech company, I usually say we're more of a tech company. Uh-huh. Um, and and what I mean by that is um, we are really, um, you know, we build – We have built our entire platform to be in the service of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so while there are other, you know, organizations that do have free curriculum, um, one difference is that they didn't 
build the technology iteratively at the same time that they wrote the curriculum. And so we, um, you know, the experience of Common Lit is very intertwined with the content and the way the poems, particular poems are presented, for yeah. example, the line breaks <clears throat> and enjambments and things like that. Um, so it's been a really quite interesting journey. Yeah, let me ask you a little bit about your explosive growth. I said in the opening mm-hmm. you're getting 20,000 new registered users every school day, mm-hmm. like 13 million or something. You know, there's a lot of other offerings out there which are for free, and they don't get this kind of growth. So what do you attribute part of it to? Yeah, I think that there are a few things. Um, I think there are three things. I think first is that in 2013, 45 states um, signed on to the Common Core. Mm -hmm. And so we had new standards that were, you know, and people were looking for new um, content uh, to align with those standards. The second thing is in 2015, the influx of technology in schools. Um, iPads, Chromebooks were flooding schools, and they were there in classrooms, whether teachers or students were ready for them or not, um, and for better or for worse. And so I think those two factors, along with just the attention that we had to quality content um, and our timing was just like the perfect storm. And so you're right. We now, on average, on a school day register 20,000 teachers and students. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And you recently brought in a team to measure your impact. That's right. Um, how effective you are. What did you find out? Yeah, so this is was uh, so interesting. So what we did is we had three questions. One is when students use Commonlit, do they do better on Commonlit assessments that we wrote? The answer from that across our entire sample was yes. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine that doesn't really say much because if you use Flappy Bird more, you get better at Flappy Bird. (laughs) I wouldn't have used that analogy, but I get it. You have a (laughs) one-year-old. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so – and the second is, so, okay, so what about – are the gains within Commonlit correlated to gains on an outside assessment that Commonlit didn't wrote mm-hmm. that's been nationally normed? Um, and so we looked across the state of Florida at schools' growth on the Florida State Assessment in English Language Arts and found that there was a strong, strong correlation between frequency of use on our platform and student gains on that assessment. So that was a great finding. It sure is. Our third question was, do schools, does Commonlet have a greater impact in low-income schools, which is specific to our mission? And the answer was a small, but yes, a special effect for low-income schools. Well, with the wonderful success you've had in this country, you started looking overseas, going global. Tell us where you stand with that. Yeah. So um, about 18 months ago, we got a $3.5 million grant from Google.org to expand our work in Mexico. And so we partnered with a great organization called UNATE. Mm -hmm. Um, You might be familiar with it. And what they do is they work with rural and under-resourced schools across Mexico. Um, I think they have like maybe a thousand or something like that. And they um, bring in internet and hardware into the schools. And so we came in and brought the Common Lit platform, and also training um, for the teachers and who are now piloting it now. Um, so we've had great success there. We've learned a lot about, you know, working internationally, and frankly, just that our assumptions about viral growth do not port in the <laughs> international context. Yeah. And so the way that, you know, we've learned a lot about how teachers around the world discover teaching resources and how it's so different and Mm. actually far more centralized in Mexico than in the U.S. Um, Michelle, let's get to the organization a little bit. And when you start up uh, Common Lit, something like this, you're probably going back and forth. Do I make this a nonprofit? Do I make this a social good business? Maybe a benefit corporation? A lot of things that you uh, had away. Tell us about what some of those things were and why you decided on the nonprofit model. 
Yeah. So this wasn't a very easy decision. Never is. And I can tell you that, you know, at the time when I was deciding this, there were so many education technology startups that were raising tons of money in early stage venture capital. And so, you know, and then meanwhile, I mean, you know, talking from other entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs that um, institutional foundations aren't always equipped to, you know, they don't always open their doors wide for very, very early stage No, they want proven concepts. Yeah, exactly. They're looking for proof. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I felt that I wanted to invest all of the organization's resources in R&D. Mm-hmm. And instead of focusing in the early stages on a business model and sales and marketing and, you know, having a booth at a conference, I just wanted to double down and show efficacy. Yeah. And it takes time and it's very difficult to do when you have some, um, you know, venture capitalists there wanting the return, wanting the return. Mm-hmm. And you really forget about what you're trying to do and you're trying to please them because they put up the the initial money. Well, you also received a $4 million grant from the Department of Education a number of years ago. And with that grant, you said, uh-oh, we got a lot of stuff to do here. Yes. There are high expectations. And you scaled up the organization very, very quickly. You did some things very well and probably a few things that you learned some lessons from. Tell us about those. Yeah. So in 2016, um, and at the time we were a three-person team, Mm -hmm. um, and I was not collecting a salary at that point either. Um, I was working out of, you know, like a shared office space, sort of like a WeWork in Washington, D.C. Took your wedding money and put it into this. (laughs) Yeah. And we were still kind of just like watching our Google Analytics. Um, And then I found this federal grant on grants.gov called Innovative Approaches to Literacy, and I read it and I thought, you know what? The research study that I did meets the What Works Clearinghouse, Mm -hmm. you know, standard for quasi-experimental design. I think that I can win this. And so I spent a couple months just building this entire plan for, you know, basically the the roadmap of the organization, um, which was remarkably right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we stuck to it quite uh, quite well. And um, and uh, we had to hire, you know, like 15 people in 40 days or wow. something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I learned so much from that experience. Um, you know, I had really never hired anyone mm-hmm. in my life. I had never managed a large team. And so I think um, – you know, what I've learned now is that you have to think about company culture way earlier than you think. And I I wrote an article about how I think you need to define it first or it will define you. Yeah, and it's hard to, to get out of it after it's defined you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that we sort of got people who's quickly, whose resumes looked amazing and sort of failed also in the interview process to ask some of the core questions about, you know, how do you like to work? Mm-hmm. Are you very collaborative? You know, are you ready to go in a startup environment? Um you know, and also just having a mission fit um, and really believing in the vision. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the end, at the end of all this, it was actually a really, really important exercise for us. Um, we define our company culture with S-L-A-Y, slay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's sweat the details, learn and share, align yourself mm-hmm. and yield to the team. And so, um, you know, now Slay is across our organization. It's how, you know, we um, uh, employees get reviewed on the Slay rubric, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, top down and bottom down reviews. Um, And and it's really worked well. Yeah. yeah. And I think the key word you use there, too, was team. Mm -hmm. Because what you did, especially when you have to get that many people on board so quickly, you hire individuals. You're looking for a star here, a star here, an Mm -hmm. expert there. But if they can't mesh as a team, it it's actually can be worse than having people who will be less qualified, you know? So uh, that, that was really one of the great learnings that you've, you've passed along. So let me close with this, Michelle. How many schools across the country uh, are using Common Lit, at least one teacher at each one of those schools? And tell us a story mm-hmm. of one. 
Yeah. So right now we have about, we have over 62,000 schools across the country that have at least one active faculty account. Um, And that's really pretty amazing. Um, And there's, you know, I'll tell you this story, which I think is just remarkable and sort of full circle. So this happened about a week ago. Um, a teacher from Natchez, Mississippi, mm-hmm. her name is Von Zell, um, sent me, Michelle, um, a personal letter, handwritten, um, with a $50 enclosed check to Common Lit. And on the check it says, you know, a proud grandmother and it has all these colors and you know it just reminded me that you know I've I've gotten checks from Google millions of dollars you know over 12 million dollars since I started common lit and I've got to say that this check of 50 dollars was the most meaningful check that I've ever endorsed <laughs> and so well you did cash um, it at least I do hear that endorsed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know it's just That's a lot of money for a teacher in Natchez, Mississippi, but I think it just speaks to um, to what we're doing. Yeah, well, those are the people you really want to touch them and the students that those teachers are teaching. Well, Michelle Brown, the founder and CEO of Commonlet, thanks so much for being here this evening. If somebody wants to add their name to those twenty thousand registered users signing up every school day or make a contribution of let's say fifty dollars or so, what do they need to do? Yeah, so there. So first, you should go to commonlit.org if you'd like to donate. Um, you can go to commonlit.org slash donate. Uh, we're also hiring, mm-hmm. and we're going to be posting jobs um, here in, in uh, the next couple months. So check out our careers page as well if you would like to get involved. Well, thank you, Michelle. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Tiana was homeless and looking for a change when she found Year Up. Like many in her community, she was smart and talented, but didn't have the same opportunities as others. At Europe, she gained valuable skills and experience entering the healthcare IT field upon graduation. Europe is a transformative opportunity for motivated young adults and companies looking for talent. 85% of alumni are employed or in school within four months of graduation. Support young adults like Tiana. Visit Europe.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. There are a number of mission-driven consulting firms in the philanthropic and social change arena, and many of them do excellent work. But there are just a few who are truly thought leaders, whose insights and practices not only help their clients, but inform the entire sector how they can go about their work more creatively and effectively. On that very short list, you would find FSG. And it's a pleasure to have with us this evening the co-CEO of FSG, Lauren Smith. Good evening, Lauren, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, I question a question I know you get asked very often is, what does FSG stand for and how did the organization get started? Somehow I imagine that you might ask that um, (laughs) because I get asked that. I do, in fact, get asked that frequently. So FSG stood for Foundation Strategy Group. And when the firm was founded about 20 years ago, um, the work was primarily focused on providing um, strategic consulting to foundations who wanted to have meaningful and lasting social impact. Over time, the uh, firm expanded the clients with whom they worked in terms of who they wanted to uh, be with in terms mm-hmm. of making the kind of uh, social impact to include corporations, to include place-based um, initiatives. So the foundation strategy group morphed to just simply FSG. You know, you have pioneered uh, a number of concepts that have really helped transform this social uh, arena. And perhaps we can touch on two of the very best, starting with collective impact. Share with us the thinking behind this approach. Well, yes, and I think that what's so meaningful about collective impact is that it it really just synthesized or um, codified what people understood to be true in the social sector, public health sector, sort of across the field, which is that if you want to get after a 
deep, complex, intractable problem, you're going to need multiple perspectives and multiple kinds of uh, folks involved in solving it. So collective impact essentially was just that multi-sector collaborative process for developing uh, effective change at the systems level. So that was what happened. I think that the key elements there around developing a shared agenda, so people have to get together and feel like, hey, we understand and we define the problem in the same way. One playbook. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's shocking how much people feel like they're in the same room having the same conversation, but they're just not because they have different conceptions of the problem. Um, and then, you know, other other elements like, you know, having mutually um, aligned and mutually reinforcing activities and, and focus so that you and I don't have to do the same thing, mm-hmm. but let's be aware of what we're doing so that we can build on the other's work and not be, at best, you know, just doing parallel play, but at worst, potentially, you know, competing or undermining, you know, efforts. So there's a number of elements about it, but I think that, it really resonated with people because it made sense. And it was really trying to, as I said, synthesize or codify what a lot of folks in the field had been really seeing. Yeah, and a very important element of that, which you guys really insisted upon, was that backbone organization yes. to, to sort of make sure the trains run on time. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting you you call that out because, you know, we were fortunate to recently have a, a evaluation of about 25 or so collective impact efforts across the country, some of which we participated in and most of which we didn't. But one of the things that the evaluators found was that exactly what you said, the backbone role, having someone whose job it is to think about the whole enterprise and to not set the agenda, mm-hmm. but to create the the container and to create the the space for all those other actors to work effectively that for the folks for the um, collective impact areas that had achieved, uh, you know, achieved meaningful results, the backbone was a really important oh, role. Bet. You need someone to make sure that people do what they say they're going to do. <laughs> yes, and to help them sort of see the connections yeah. across their, you know, across their work. Yeah. It's so sad sometimes that people don't ever want to fund the backbone or- organization, well, despite how vital it, it can be. Yes, I think you're right, and I think part of the thing is that you know people. People can be seduced or sort of intrigued by what seems shinier or more (laughs) interesting or perhaps more, um, I don't know, uh, fancier. But it's the nitty gritty work of getting the people together, making sure the meetings happen, identifying partners that maybe haven't been involved, that need to be involved. You know, that's that's roll up your sleeves kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, And it, it is essential. Another important concept that got started at FSG by Harvard professor and co-founder Michael Porter is shared value. What is that? So shared value is really the premise that businesses can achieve a business impact and can make um, profit and do well by doing good. Mm -hmm. That is by uh, achieving and addressing social issues or social problems. And And it was revolutionary at the time when this came out. Yes, because I think the idea then was, well, if business wants to address social problems, it has to do it through its charity Mm -hmm. or through its um, sheer just giving, as opposed to, hey, we could make it part of the core line of business to address something that's a challenge for the society. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, uh, you folks recently released the CSR Strategy Roadmap, and that's a step-by-step guide to CSR. In that report, you say that CSR portfolios have changed dramatically in the last five years. In what way have they changed? Well, I think that in a number of ways. One is I I think that there has been a shrinking of the distance between the folks that are thinking about CSR and the folks that are thinking about the the internal – business strategy for the corporation. So whereas before they might have been kind of isolated, you do your thing and we're doing our thing and maybe they interact, maybe they don't. The holiday party, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Whereas now I think that you know business and corporation are, are much deeper in understanding how they can in fact be mutually reinforcing and, and improve the overall um, functioning of the business. And I would just give as an example of that, um, there's a burgeoning 
interest in businesses creating a culture of health. So there's mm-hmm. a, a number of efforts underway right now where business leaders are thinking about and considering how do we contribute to the overall health and well-being of our communities, our employees, you know, the societies in which we live, not only by our corporate philanthropy, but even more importantly, perhaps the main thrust of our business and how we do our business. Health is such a wholesome word, isn't it? Yes, uh, when, yes, when you, of course. When you really apply it to, the, to, to those kinds of uh, efforts. Well, speaking of health, yes. you are a pediatrician, so it stands to reason that much of your work at FSG has been in that health arena. So let's touch on a couple things there. There has been increased attention on adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. How are they defined? What's the estimate of the number of children who have experienced them, and what is their impact on those children? Yes, well, that's a, a very important question, and I, I'm happy to see that the field is recognizing the the impact of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, as you mentioned. And, and those are defined as things that happen in childhood that leave or could leave a lasting sort of toxic effect on yeah. the child. So things like the loss of a parent, things like... Um, living uh, in homelessness or experiencing or witnessing domestic violence um, of a parent or other you know, loved one in the family. Um, all of those kinds of things lead to a stress response in the child. Mm-hmm. And I think what we now understand, and it's you know, really important work at the physiologic level, the impact that stress has on creating um, a longer-term response to that stress over time. And and one of the reasons, to be honest, I think people are getting more interested in it now is the the data shows that kids who experience ACEs as, as in childhood are much less, much more likely to have chronic illness wow. and things as, you know, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, a whole host of other issues as well as, you know, behavioral health issues, as well as not, you know, achieving as much in education or in their economic, you know, output. So I think people are starting to understand that this has, these experiences have legs. And importantly, there's ways to mitigate or um, address them and prevent them and help children heal, children and families heal. So Give, give us an example of one of the ways you can address one of these uh, experiences. Well, one of the, the things <laughs> that people are really looking into now is sort of how to support families in who are experiencing poverty or economic, you know, uh, difficulties. And that means that there's a, a community-level approach. There needs to be a two-generational approach. You've mm-hmm. probably heard mo- many more people thinking and talking about how do you support not just a child, but the child and the family. Um, I think we've matured quite a bit where we used to think, oh, well, we can try to do things for the child as if they don't live in a context of a family yeah. with parents, as if you know what's happening to the parents is unrelated to or unconnected to how the children are doing. So I think there's an increased recognition around, for example, two-generational or cross-generational approaches, whereas before people were focusing more on the child. Yeah, so a lot along the lines of trying to deal with an individual's health and yeah. being completely uh, unconcerned about the community in which they live. Correct. And you begin to right. look at it and you say, you know, they're actually pretty linked. Well, they're incredibly linked. Yeah. And I think one of the, the things that the field now understands in a much deeper way is what, you know, f- people call the social determinants of health yeah. or the structural determinants of 50%. health. 50%. You know, more than yeah. even. Um, so it's... As a clinician, of course, I am all about uh, making sure that people get fabulous health care that's, you know, evidence-based, you mm-hmm. know, and high quality and appropriate. And I also recognize that so much of what drives health, people bring with them before they even get into the clinical setting. So that's where they live, where they go to school, do they have access to grocery stores, are they living in a food desert, yeah. all those kinds of things. All connected. Um, Well, as a clinician, what's your assessment of what is happening to these migrant children at the border and what should be done given the circumstances? Yes. Well, um, that gives me – it's hard to even know where to begin. I mean, it's it's a tragedy of epic proportions because it's – we have created it as Mm. a – 
as a as a country and as individuals and to think that we are consciously and knowingly putting children in settings that we know are is causing harm and uh, can have lasting detrimental effects to those children is shocking, I think, is a mild way of, of putting it. So the idea of what we should be doing, I mean, we need to have a way of, you know, caring for kids at the border, I think separating them from their parents just as a non-starter. Answer, That's know. absolutely not. I mean, that is you know, you talk about ACEs. Mm. That is, you know, all caps, all caps, right up there. Um, and I think we all have seen some of the the pictures and the footage of just how traumatizing that is, especially for kids who have don't speak the language, obviously, and then are then held in these these conditions that are pretty inhumane. So, I think not separating the kids, having a a much uh, faster uh, approach or mechanism for resolving, you know, the 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 immigration status issues. But mm-hmm. you know, the folks that are coming here, you know, making the trek here, um, are not doing so lightly. I mean, so they're 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 making the estimation that this could be better f- than whatever horrors they're fleeing. Yeah. And so that's the other thing I would just say, um, Denver, is that the compounding of, I mean, people are leaving because of trauma that they're experiencing or violence or uh, then they're experiencing it along the way. And then once they we get them, they we then compound it and exas- and intensify it. Um, that's just really a recipe for terrible outcomes for these kids. Yeah. Lauren, U.S. healthcare at times really seems like a moving target. There are so many proposals. A messy moving <laughs> target. That's right. Everything's being kicked around. You got yeah. proposals. You got plans. In a climate with such uncertainty, how do you and FSG advise the foundations you work with and your clients uh, and philanthropists how they can create real impact? Well, you know, one one question or one way we answer that is to be sure that people are thinking comp- in a compelling and coherent way around what drives the health of communities. Mm-hmm. So while the healthcare system if you want to call it that in quotes, <laughs> you know, with, you know, being, uh, I think, very um, generous to call it a system um, is in flux. And I think you're quite right. I mean, there's right now, as an example, people are wondering about what kind of, uh, you know, universal Medicare for all you know, is mm-hmm. being talked about, et cetera. Or there, are there other st- structural changes to healthcare delivery? But even within that context, as people are experimenting, they're experimenting with how do you drive value with assessing impact, right? So the really creative work that's happening on the healthcare side is how can we organize how we reimburse and how we uh, set up incentives so that it's aligned with what we know is important for overall health. That's a pretty important shift. And so I think that one of the ways that we can sort of support foundations and others who want to continue and and having impact in that area is to help them see where are the opportunities to support that kind of shift and that kind of bridging between healthcare and as you alluded to before the rest of the community where health happens and where people live makes an awful lot of sense speaking about systems FSG was one of the first to appreciate that social change is really about systems change. What are some yes. of the key principles and practices of systems thinking? Well, you know, I'm glad you you made you made that question or asked that question. There's, I think, what's hard about systems change is that it can seem sort of messy or fuzzy, um, and so it it seems maybe um, hard to grasp. But I think the key thing that I would say is that in order for policies, for laws, for regulations, for all those things to change, which are key drivers of systems change when we think about um, legislation and we think about all those sorts of structural pieces. If you go underneath of that, you find that people's understanding of how the world works and their mindsets about what actually a system is or should be or what it's trying to achieve, that has to change too. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've we find and we find very much with our clients is that if you only focus on the programmatic aspects or the the top layer what's more visible and you don't get after the power dynamics or the the relationships and then the mindsets the mind shifts that have to happen then 
the changes that you do don't stick because they're not supported by, you know, a more meaningful shift in how people think the world works and how people think that, you know, problems can be solved. So in our work, we're trying to help people sort of drive down to that and be working at all those different levels yeah. so that they're not only focused on um, the at the policy level, which I should say, as a former public health official, I ran the public health department for Massachusetts. Policy is really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't underestimate that. But you also want to have something underneath that holds it together sure. so that if people leave or move, the policies don't just drift away, but it's the underpinnings that holds it together. It's the old iceberg metaphor. Yes, uh, yes, exactly and right. And it is interesting how sometimes you can make some real improvements in a certain area or program but also have adverse consequences over here that you're not even aware of, not even looking yes. for, not even measuring. But that doesn't happen when you're looking at the entire system and how everything impacts something else. Well, and, and the other piece is that if you're if you're looking at a, a programmatic approach, and I think that the philanthropy field is, you know, evolving rapidly in how it's thinking about its own influence in improving proving things for the folks that you know people want to to have live better lives and be healthier and 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 all of that um it's it's about not only recognizing that there's a a program but thinking about what are the what got the problem to to stay in place mm -hmm. and this piece around you know, not only what created the problem, but what's holding it in place. And so much of that, those structural kind of impediments are invisible to people. They don't even think about it because it's so part of the day-to-day. -day. Well, of course, this is how things are. This is how they've always been, but sure. they don't really the fish see... women in water. What's water? What's water? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, so, and often it could be the culture. Right. The that, culture. That insidious yeah. culture that's around you that you don't even realize you just accept as the norm. Well, as an example, um, I'm sure you've heard that you know Optum, which is a you know very um, mm -hmm. important you know health uh, insurance provider, recently it was found out or elucidated that one of their predictive algorithms that was meant to identify which um, patients were more likely to need healthcare to have more severe illness was flawed and biased, and so it was regularly or systematically under-identifying the African-American patients in the cohort that would need services. So it, for the, it was over-identifying the white patients and under-identifying the black patients. So the, the algorithm had built into it this structural flaw. Mm -hmm. um, and so now they're aware of it and they're working on it. But that's just an example where that, example. that was just <laughs> – there. Yeah. And, and we so. tend to blame the algorithm or artificial intelligence without saying, you know, somebody put in all that data <laughs> to begin with. Right. And how did that data get chosen? How was exactly it selected? Right. And <clears throat> were they intentionally thinking about, is this going to undermine our efforts to reduce disparities or is it going to you know, potentially exacerbate it. Yeah. I think that's really important. Lauren, speak about what you do for a client. Now, you have a much broader palette than the organization yes. had 20 years ago. But by that, I mean the process. What are the steps you take to identify a problem and then work with that organization or entity to solve it? Sure. Well, we, we offer um, – I think one of the most important things that we do with a client is to partner with them over a period of time. Mm. And our approach is not a sort of get in and get out. Um, we go off and do some um, kind of secret deliberations behind the curtain and then come back with a big reveal, like this is your strategy or this is your evaluation plan. Um, because that doesn't really get the client to where they need to be, which is to understand and to own it and to have gone through the process of developing it themselves so that they can really see how to operationalize it. And I think that that's an important stylistic approach yeah. for us is that we we co-create with our clients. We help them think about not just the strategy that we're developing with them, but what are the learning questions that they want to have embedded in that so that they can learn and evolve as they grow? Because there's no way of knowing exactly what's going to happen a couple of years from now. So to have a, a static approach really wouldn't serve the clients well. So to have a, a learning orientation, to have a sense of how evaluation is going to get um, in there, 
Um, all of that is, you know, a key part of our approach. So for our corporate clients and for our foundation clients and in our play-based work, we we provide analysis, we provide sort of the strategic framing. And I think part of what we do is just really ask questions and help people answer them in a structured, disciplined way that gets them to where they want to go. The other part that we do is help pe- remind folks of what it is that they're looking to achieve yeah. and what might be barriers to them achieving that. Because sometimes, um, you know, people are smart. They they have ideas about what they want to do, but they may not always be aware of some of the ways that they're functioning or some of the ways they're organized or some of the the the, the ways they're not seeing what those opportunities are. You know, you sound like a firm who's very much of a coach. Yes. Because there's a belief that the organization you're dealing with knows the answers. Yes. And they have them inside them. In fact, they probably know the answers better than you. And your job is to get those obstacles out of the way so those answers can rise to the surface and they can solve yes. the problem. And, and bringing people, you know, examples of, you know, how other folks have approached or solved that problem for sure. But I do, you know, that idea of a coach or sometimes we talk about it being a guide on the side, yeah. you know where we will work with the staff of an organization, we'll work with the board, um, we'll create and and help create an atmosphere where all of them can learn and grow together. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we'll be in a situation where the board is way ahead of the staff and, you know, the staff want to keep doing things the way that they've been doing it and the board has this vision of how they want to proceed. Sometimes it's the opposite. Yeah. (laughs) Where the staff is like, no, this is really what we need to be doing, but the board, you know, is kind of stuck several decades in the past with, you know, not a clear understanding or not a, a nuanced or or uh, evolved understanding of how they can have impact. So depending on what situation we find ourselves, we'll try to sort of support get, whatever. Get them working at the sp- same speed because you don't yeah. want one to be too far ahead of the other. Right. It's not and, healthy. Right. Well, and we want to make sure that we can help folks understand what the rationale is and how it's related to being effective. Mm-hmm. I think that that's been the most um the most compelling and I think rewarding thing is when we've come with into uh, situations where there's friction or you know there might be tension. If we can peg it on what are the guiding principles and what is it that you're really wanting to achieve and hold that up as yeah. the north star, mm-hmm. it's like, are you getting there? Mm-hmm. If you're not getting there, then let's you know. If you're authentic about wanting that to be true. And let's get under there and, and figure out what's going that on. That will solve a lot of disputes if you yeah. get everybody looking at the North Star because yeah. that's where the answer will yeah. very often be. Yeah. As you know, in the foundation world, they're always talking about this power imbalance between yes. those who have the money, the foundations, and are giving it out, and the grantees who are trying to receive it. And we're always trying to even that up. But now that's even a broader conversation in all of philanthropy, particularly philanthropy in a democratic society. Yes. What can philanthropists do? to um, channel their power mm-hmm. in a different way to have a more collaborative approach uh, to make the world a better place? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I, and I think it, it hits on a theme that we've been seeing across our work, which is a deepening understanding of the need for a reckoning, an, mm. a, a, an understanding of what has come before, why things haven't worked um, and that you're not operating in a vacuum or with a complete blank canvas. So when we go into a, a community or we go to you know help a foundation, what we're trying to sort of help them understand is what was it that happened before? How did these problems get sort of established? What was the specific local context? What you know what intr- what created that? Um, and then you know adding on to that a sense of built into or not built into, but sort of underneath all of the the really deep, intractable social problems that, that our clients want to face, there are equity implications mm-hmm. in terms of who has had the opportunity to be included, who hasn't. Um, and how are those, dis- how has that been a conscious choice versus an unconscious choice and how we can sort of elevate that and make that explicit? So including communities in the work in an authentic way, um, and by authentic, I mean really being in partnership with folks uh, and tr- allowing or affording the, uh, the community to have the kind of voice and perspective built in 
throughout the whole, say, strategy process mm-hmm. or development process, that's really – that's evolving. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, there, you know, the prior approach might be to maybe you'd have a focus group yeah. or maybe you'd have an advisory committee. But you tell it, everybody you did that. <laughs> right. So you did that and then you feel like, okay, check. I've yep. done that. Mm-hmm. I think you know people are much more um, – uh, sophisticated, and now in terms of like you know that didn't really work because it wasn't a meaningful integration of the community voice and perspective throughout the entire process, and so people are are doing much more of that and having to reckon with and being willing to sometimes be, or maybe not sometimes, oftentimes being uncomfortable in settings where the community may um, demand mm-hmm. or sort of call attention to ways that the organization hasn't behaved as a as a as a real authentic respectful partner. Yeah, and in going through the history the way you talked about too, there are so many assumptions yeah. that we make and yeah. assume that this is the way it was and it's only when you begin to track back and find out how those assumptions were developed you begin right. to say oh my gosh right. was that the reason but right. right now they're just unconscious in a normal way of business well right. speaking about equity in your role as co-CEO you have really led FSG staff development efforts in diversity equity and inclusion not only among the staff but in the community and the clients you work with. Speak a little bit about that because so many people are having a hard time with it. I mean, their intentions are good. Yes. Their outcomes are less good. Yeah. What are some of the things you've been doing and what are some of the things that have been working? Well, we have we found or we believe that for us to be credible at supporting our clients and doing the kind of reckoning work that we were just talking about, we have to be able and willing to do that ourselves, mm-hmm. um, for ourselves. And so that means, as an example, recognizing that originally when the collective impact sort of um, in, uh, concept was sort of delivered or sort of synthesized, there were important elements of equity that weren't built in, that weren't sort of called out explicitly. Now, since then, sort of acknowledge that. And I think the field was quite um, appropriate in calling um, attention to that. Mm-hmm. So I think we have internally been on our own journey in terms of how we think about our work and our place in our work. And so we're still, you know, that's a work in progress. Um, and we're we're doing that own reckoning that we're talking about. We're doing that own sort of analysis of where power is and who has it and who doesn't. Um, and then when we work with clients, you know, if there are, you know, we make it a point of trying to understand if there are unspoken issues that may have percolated in a community and everyone kind of, you know, has tacitly agreed not to talk about them Mm -hmm. because that's too messy or too uncomfortable. Um, So we're empowering our staff, our senior leaders to be able to ask those questions and they're getting more um, what do you call uh, exercising the muscles of doing that with our each other so that we can you know be able to exercise those muscles with our clients let me close with this Lauren in working with the clients that you do to bring about positive social change is there one area you find to be particularly challenging at the moment where it's just so difficult to bring about the change that these organizations these communities these people are looking for well th- that is a tough question because you know we work in so many different areas, you know, with education, juvenile justice reform, um, so many different topic areas. But I would say that underlying perhaps all of the, or underlying the, the social issues that are confronting our clients, the foundations and the corporations that want to get after, get after these issues really is around economic inequality mm-hmm. and the perpetual or the... Um, continued deep divide in what people have and what they need to survive and not just to survive, but to thrive. Um, So I think if you look across our entire portfolio of work, whether or not it's the work we do here, the work we do abroad, you know, um, in Asia or uh, on the continent, on the African continent, that is, I think, the underpinning in, in terms of that economic and other insecurity that comes from 
that level of um, inequality. That is a tough one. There's no doubt about it. Well, Lauren Smith, the co-CEO of FSG, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For people to learn more about these concepts and the areas in which you work, tell us about your website and some of the information you got up there. Well, you can go to fsg.org. It will talk about, or you can find information about our practice with corporations, with foundations, as well as our initiatives, um, where we bridge the work of our consulting with the work in the field. And we have this, it's kind of like a a do tank, Mm -hmm. right? Where we have an opportunity to apply the things that we're learning outside in the field and then bring that back to our consulting work and then back out in the field again. So we have the the Collective Impact Forum, we have the Shared Value Initiative, um, and we have Talent Rewire, which is really exciting working with uh, employers on how to do employment differently. Well, I look to pick up a new word or phrase every day, and do tank will be today's. (laughs) Well, thanks, Lauren. It was a great Great. pleasure to have you on the show. Great. Thank you. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Amir Pasek, the dean of the Lilly School of Philanthropy in Indianapolis. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving. 